All right. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Usually when I'm on a panel with Bo Shen, I kind of always say my videos are not going to be half as good as his videos, but he was more human today. We didn't see any needle knife or any other kind of crazy stuff and stuff that we can all do as, as gastroenterologists in our clinical practice. So my topic is how to use chromoendoscopy and high-definition white light endoscopy to screen for dysplasia and colon cancer and IBD. So basically, as gastroenterologists, we spend much of our time doing endoscopy, and there are many different faces of IBD that we see. This one particular patient has pretty active ulcerative colitis, and over time with treatment, we may see a colon like this. The second colon is certainly a colon that's at high risk for developing IBD-related dysplasia. We'll talk about using chromoendoscopy to help distinguish areas that need to be biopsied. This is a one on the upper right is just chromoendoscopy with multiple pseudopolyps. This is what they may look like uh, without chromoendoscopy. And I'll be showing you this image later. This is a telling image of using chromoendoscopy to find the needle in the haystack. This was a dysplastic polyp that we found that's easily discernible by using chromoendoscopy where there's not uptake of the dye. And hopefully where we ultimately want to get is to get to here with our medical therapy. And we heard lots today about optimizing medical therapy to try to get to that picture. So we'll be reviewing the ACG, ASGE, and scenic recommendations. First of all, you need to realize that you need to stratify your patients and determine who are the highest risk individuals, because those are the patients that you may want to consider chromoendoscopy on. Not everyone needs chromoendoscopy. Uh, so this is a meta-analysis of cohort studies that reported on the occurrence of uh, colon cancer in patients with IBD or UC. And if you looked at the pooled standardized incidence ratio of CRC in all patients, these are all comers, it was 1.7 with the confidence intervals you see. And if you just calculate the risk of developing colorectal cancer, a very large cohort, it was 1, 2, and 5% after 10, 20, and greater than 20 years duration. But there were clearly high-risk groups in this cohort. If you have extensive colitis, your standardized incidence ratio was 6.4, and if you were diagnosed prior to the age of 30, it was 7.2. So a person with pancolitis that you're seeing at 45 who was diagnosed at 25 is going to have a different risk than someone who has left-sided disease uh, who was diagnosed at 45. So what are the factors that increase the risk of developing colorectal cancer? Duration of colitis, we know. Anatomic extent, again, patients with proctitis or distal proctosigmoiditis do not have an increased risk of developing colorectal neoplasia. Again, the highest risk is in patients with pancolitis. Patients with primary sclerosing cholangitis is one of our highest risk individual groups. You need to consider the family history, a first degree relative with colorectal cancer prior to the age of 50 as a risk factor. Age of IBD onset we discussed. Perhaps the number one predictor of developing IBD-related dysplasia is having previous dysplasia on a biopsy. Now, over the last several years, we've begun to understand that endoscopic and histologic inflammation is a risk factor. Healing the mucosa is certainly going to lower the risk of developing IBD-related dysplasia. A number of endoscopic features, including strictures, pseudopolyps, and a foreshortened colon. When you're doing a case with a, a fellow and all of a sudden you're in the cecum and they only have 60 centimeters worth of colon, they may be very good endoscopists, but they may also be scoping someone with UC and a foreshortened colon. Recent data that just was e-published from New York talked about maybe pseudopolyps not being a risk factor. Again, we'll talk about that. I do think it certainly makes identification of dysplasia difficult. And something else to consider is that male gender is in an independent risk factor. So men have an increased risk of developing IBD-related colorectal neoplasia over women. 
So endoscopic surveillance in IBD patients at risk for colorectal uh, neoplasia, why do we do it? Well, the goal is to detect and treat asymptomatic colorectal neoplasia. That's either dysplasia or early-stage colorectal cancer in an effort to reduce morbidity and mortality related to colorectal cancer. What we know in 2018 is that most dysplasia in ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease of the colon is visible using high-definition white light colonoscopy with the addition of chromoendoscopy in selected high-risk individuals. And many, many years ago, when I was a GI fellow, if you identified dysplasia, whether it was polypoid or a random biopsy, that meant a direct referral to the surgeon. We now know that treatment of IBD-related polypoid dysplasia and non-polypoid dysplasia can include both, both endoscopy and various endoscopic techniques as well as surgery. So these are the references I'd like you to look at. These were simultaneous publications in GIE and gastroenterology. These are the scenic recommendations. Another very good useful reference would be this paper that was published in 2015, The Role of Endoscopy in Inflammatory Bowel Disease that was was in GIE. And then finally, we'll talk about the recent ACG recommendations for surveillance for IBD that were published in the American Journal. So first, let's go over some uh, nomenclature. So dysplasia in 2018 is either visible or invisible. We should basically banish the terms down, adenoma-like down, or non-adenoma-like down in the future. And basically, we should use the terms, if you identify a dysplastic lesion, it's either endoscopically resectable, which means the following. There are distinct margins. The lesion appears to be completely removed on visual inspection and by uh, pathology. And biopsies taken from around the specimen show that there's no dysplasia. I don't necessarily biopsy every single kind of one centimeter pedunculated lesion in a patient, but in patients that have more flat lesions, I will certainly biopsy from around the area. So if your lesion does not meet those criteria, it is basically endoscopically unresectable. So I would say no more down, no more adenoma-like down. It's either a polypoid lesion that's endoscopically resectable or not resectable. So these are the recommendations from the most recent uh, uh, series of uh, societies. You can see ASGE, BSG, AGA, ACG, ECHO, and the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation all recommend doing surveillance in patients who have extensive or left-sided ulcerative colitis. Patients, uh, you begin surveillance eight years after onset of symptoms, not necessarily onset of of uh, disease or diagnosis of disease. Many patients will have smoldering symptoms for several years. And then you can see the frequency is anywhere between one and three years in U.S. recommendations, but ECHO and BSG have recommended that you can extend this at very low-risk individuals for five years. And we heard over this meeting some of us are considering extending intervals in a select group of very low-risk individuals. PSC patients begin surveillance at the time of diagnosis. And if you see here, chromoendoscopy is recommended by the ASGE, the BSGE, uh, considered for high-risk patients in Osher's um, uh, 2010 UC guideline, and ECHO also recommends chromoendoscopy. So how do you do it, basically, or how do you perform surveillance? Chromoendoscopy with targeted biopsies was recommended by the ASGE with this level of evidence. Chromoendoscopy with targeted biopsies are sufficient for dysplasia in surveillance in patients with IBD. And however, you, you don't need to do the 32 or 36 biopsies, but take 
two or three biopsies in the proximal colon, the left colon, and the rectum, so you can assess for histologic healing. And then ultimately, random biopsies uh, with targeted biopsies of any suspicious appearing lesions remain a reasonable alternative in a poor bowel prep, in a patient with innumerable pseudopolyps, or if you haven't yet mastered the use of chromoendoscopy. So this was the ASGE in 2015. The ACG in Gary Lichtenstein and the Crohn's disease guideline felt that there was a role for chromoendoscopy in patients at particularly high risk for colorectal neoplasia, a personal history of dysplasia, primary sclerosis and cholangitis. Chromoendoscopy should be used in those patients, but they felt there was insufficient evidence to recommend chromoendoscopy for all uh, patients undergoing surveillance. Now, they did not feel that narrowband imaging uh, is an alternative. So you cannot use narrowband imaging as an alternative to chromoendoscopy in high-risk individuals where you feel they need some type of uh, advanced endoscopic procedure. And they also felt that once you master the technique of chromoendoscopy, that you don't need to do the additional 32 biopsies. You can just basically do a series of random biopsies throughout the colon. And again, not to look for flat or invisible dysplasia, but rather to grade the assessment or to assess the degree of histologic inflammation. As I mentioned earlier, there are a number of different studies. The most recent meta-analysis basically feels that there is no sufficient evidence to recommend narrowband imaging as an alternative. Anyone who does endoscopy in a patient with active ulcerative colitis and turns on narrowband, basically what happens is that the image turns black because of the hypervascularity. Now, and again, it's not recommended in the scenic ACG, Crohn's disease, and ECHO guidelines. Now, that doesn't mean that if you see a lesion and you're trying to define it, whether you can certainly turn on and use your NBI. However, you can't use NBI to go up and down the right colon and say that you're doing it as an alternative to chromoendoscopy. So how do you do chromoendoscopy? This comes from another paper in GIE in 2017. And what we do in our unit is basically, and I'll give you, tell you some of the solutions we use. We use Prove Blue, two vials, um, of the 0.5% is, is basically uh, diluted into about 300 cc's. We put it in the, uh, the water jet and we then basically inject it after we evaluate the colon. We'll give you some examples how, how to do that. So basically there are some dangers in chromoendoscopy. The first danger is the cost. So these are the solution that we use, this thing called Prove Blue. We can buy it as a five-pack, but ultimately it ends up being $160 per ampule. So you're adding close to $320, this is how we buy it, in terms of your cost. And if you're in an endoscopy suite, an outpatient endoscopy suite, this may be cost prohibitive. One of the biggest dangers of chromoendoscopy, don't wear your best shoes when you go and do your chromoendoscopy. And this is our endoscopy unit after a particularly difficult day uh, where we kind of did a little bit of spilling of our dye. It can come out if, the, uh, if folks uh, can come and completely re-wax the floor. So it does create a lot of issues uh, for me if we have a bad day in the endoscopy suite. So again, this uh, different video, a different series of videos and recommendations uh, published in GIE. The key thing here, if you kind of look at the, um, if you look at this here, your goal is after you spray the colon, you want to get a nice confluent uh, uptake or coating of the colon. And this allows you to clearly look at the pit pattern and you're looking for areas that don't take up the dye or you're looking for areas where uh, there's a break in the typical uh, pattern. And so the way you do this is again, you don't want to spray here because here you're in a dependent part 
Uh, and what's going to happen is you can make the exam even more difficult, where you now have a blue area that you can't see through. So what you want to do is kind of spray the superior aspect, and then by gravity it will kind of work its way down and ultimately have an image like this. And the way we do it is we'll basically do our white light exam while going in. You need an ideal bowel prep. You do need to aspirate and deal with any bubbles that you have as you're going in. Take as much fluid out as you want. This is the one situation when doing with a fellow, I do not want them to fill the colon uh, with water in the right colon because I then have to suck all that out. And so we try to get to the cecum with minimal uh, water. We do suck out any debris. And then basically, um, what will happen is you'll be able to get a good look. So let's look at some representative endoscopic images. I think everyone can identify these as pseudopolyps. Um, an ulcerated lesion in a non-IBD patient in a polyp is a very worrisome finding because it often means it's a malignancy. But that's not the case in patients with IBD. Typically, you see these polyps with an ulcerated cap. Now, this is different in contrast to the other lesions. This is a flat area here. I mean, it's, actually, it's, it's not flat. It's basically non-polypoid uh, area, and it's kind of hard to see where the borders are in terms of doing an endoscopic resection on this patient. But in contrast, this patient right here, although it's lumpy-bumpy, you can clearly see that's a dysplastic lesion, and this one could be easily resected by the average practicing gastroenterologist, including myself. And so I showed you this image before. This is a patient who was referred for chromoendoscopy where a random biopsy from the right colon showed, a dis showed invisible dysplasia. But when you were able to go back, ideal bowel prep, chromoendoscopy, you found this bilobe lesion, which was a dysplastic lesion that was resected. Uh, next slide, please. So let's run some videos. So and I'll click again. So this is a patient, you can see that there's a discoloration. You have to remember that methylene blue, and there are two dyes, methylene blue or indigo carmine, there are various shortages at, at any number of times we've been using the methylene blue. Methylene blue is an absorptive dye. What you do is you spray the colon, you wait 30 seconds, and you're looking for areas that don't take up the dye. If it doesn't take up the dye, it's either inflammation or it's dysplasia. And this is a case where you can see it does not have a pit pattern that looks particularly worrisome, and this was an area of inflammation. Now, this is, in, this is in contrast, a patient with multiple pseudopolyps. I certainly could recognize that this can be difficult to look for the needle in the haystack. Again, there's a polyp that the endoscopist identified. You can then spray this colon, and again, you'll be looking for an area that kind of sits out or, or, or basically looks like a sore thumb. And when you really look at this colon, I think you can be comfortable that these are all pseudopolyps. Now, this is a different lesion. So this is an area, as I mentioned earlier, you see that the, you've got the dye spray, but it's not taking up the dye. So this would be something that you would, it would draw your attention to, and you would want to examine this. You can kind of zoom in on this. And this is a lesion that's too much for me. I, I'm not going to take this one on. I, I'm kinda, I think I know where the borders are, but this is going to be a, a lesion that I may tattoo on either site, uh, and therefore, my advanced endoscopist could find it. But what you don't want to do is take six biopsies of this. And what that's going to do is going to cause the lesion to be tacked down to the submucosa and make it more difficult for your advanced endoscopist to remove it. This is another lesion, again, where it's lumpy-bumpy. It's, it's kind of hard to know where the, 
where the lesion ends, and when you do some dye, you can kind of see that there may be satellite lesions, and this is a patient who is going to be sent for uh, surgical resection. So what's the elephant in the room? The elephant in the room for folks who haven't learned to do chromoendoscopy is the number of cases. On average, people think that 15 to 20 cases would be the way to go. And what you would do is this. You still do your 32 biopsies, you do your chromoendoscopy, and then basically you, you identify lesions, you put in jar A, it's a, it's a flat lesion that you think may be inflammatory, and then when the pathology comes back, you compare what your pretest probability is, what you predicted it to be, and what it ends up being. And again, if you do 15 or 20 cases, I think you'll get to the point where you could potentially abandon the random biopsies, and that's the goal. I still... In the initial time, I booked 45 minutes for my cases. Now I booked 30 minutes for my cases because I'm not doing multiple biopsies. I'm not doing this rote speak to the, the, the endoscopy nurses about the baseball game while just doing my random biopsies. I'm really concentrating on what we're doing. Obviously, an ideal bowel prep is needed. We do need additional uh, studies on the natural history of dysplasia identified by chromoendoscopy. It may be that if you do two chromoendoscopy exams, that patient can go to three to five years before they need another surveillance, and that may be a way to bring the total cost for surveillance down. No definitive way, unfortunately, as best as I can tell, to compensate for your time, especially if you're now allocating 45 minutes for the procedure. And we've talked about some of the shortages. Now, I mentioned this earlier. There are certain patterns that if you identify, this would suggest that the patient may have a malignancy. Submucosal invasion features, irregular surface pattern, inability to lift. And I mentioned earlier, don't go ahead and take on a lesion that you feel you can't take on. Take a biopsy or not even take a biopsy. If you're convinced it needs to come out by an advanced endoscopist, just go ahead, tattoo it, and refer the patient back where they can have a discussion of the risk and benefits. So this also comes from the scenic guidelines, optimizing management of dysplasia and IBD. The feeling is that endoscopic removable of visible uh, endoscopically resectable dysplasia should be the approach rather than colectomy, which is what we did 25 years ago. After complete removal of either polypoid dysplasia or non-polypoid dysplasia, those patients can be managed with continued surveillance as opposed to colectomy. If you can't remove the lesion, obviously, you can go ahead and refer. And then finally, take on lesions that you feel comfortable you can take on. And the techniques are exactly the same. This is one that I would take on. The lesion was basically seen even without, uh, without chromo. And then when you do chromo, you can kind of see the borders a little bit better. You can either lift it or not lift it and use standard endoscopic techniques. If you want some more guidance on how to learn these techniques in your handout, you'll see a number of different YouTube videos. This third reference is a whole um, gastrointestinal endoscopy clinics of North America that's open access. And there are multiple different chapters, lots of different images for you to look at, and it's a wonderful resource. Uh, this also comes from the ASGE Learning Center. And just recently, there was a pro and con uh, uh, dis no, no, pro and con discussion between Mike, uh, Mike Pico and Gary Lichtenstein on when to use chromoendoscopy uh, in their practice. So to summarize, the absolute risk of colorectal cancer in IBD is limited. Subgroups, though, of patients with long-standing pancolitis who do not undergo colectomy and patients with PSE carry a greater risk of developing colorectal cancer. That patient with kind of indolent disease on mesalamine 
who's just living with their disease, who doesn't come for surveillance, is someone who's at risk. Obviously, the super high-risk individuals have lost their colon. To prevent IBD-related colorectal cancer, the goal is to minimize severity and extent of inflammation, and there are a number of different methods to do this. Obviously, we're trying to optimize our therapy. Chromoendoscopy does detect more dysplasia than high-definition white light endoscopy, but using high-definition white light endoscopy is a big advance compared to what we had 15 years ago. We do need prospective data that chromoendoscopy prevents development of colorectal cancer in our IBD patients. Again, we now have the treatment tools to be able to convert a patient like this or a patient like this to this. And I think that if we can get to that level, we can probably reduce the risk of our IBD patients developing uh, dysplasia and cancer. Thank you very much.